Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called The Perseverance of the Saints. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 2nd, 2014, for All Saints Day. It's a guest essay by Edwina Gately. I encourage you to visit her website at edwinagately.com. This week, the church celebrates All Saints Day. If you ask the average Christian what that means, they'll probably tell you that we remember and honor holy and extraordinary people who have gone before us, most likely leaving behind them a trail of miracles and amazing acts of self-sacrifice, suffering, heroism, and the like. At least, this is what you would probably hear from members of my own Catholic tradition. But this is a narrow definition of sainthood which undermines and excludes what I believe was the original intention of all saints. The early church, having survived over 300 years of persecution, wanted to remember and celebrate those Christians who had remained faithful in spite of the fear, the hostility, and the very real danger of their witness to Christ. So they allocated a special day to honor all those who had endured and persevered during those violent times. My hunch is that the vast majority of those believers were ordinary folks who were probably scared out of their wits, but hung in there because of their faith. In that sense, being a saint has nothing to do with being special or holy or different. It was and is about being faithful, no matter what. Of course, in those early times, many Christians suffered horrendous deaths and were burnt, crucified, eaten by lions, died in dungeons, and so on. Others attained feats of endurance or performed miraculous deeds. But the average Christian saint probably hunkered down and prayed to get through the traumas of the time without losing faith. This is, in itself, heroic. But over the centuries, this understanding of saints as regular Christians staying faithful under duress was edged out in favor of the miraculous and the dramatic, the martyrs and the miracle workers. It's no wonder that Christians today struggle to really believe they can ever be a light to the world. Our generation is desperately in need of a renewed and authentic understanding of all saints. While physical persecution of Christians still exists in some parts of the world, there's another kind of challenge that calls for a courageous response from believers. The human race is facing a darkness that is pervasive and frightening. On all levels, our faith in God's presence and grace is being challenged. Endless wars, climate change, rampant diseases, corporate power, increasing poverty, and natural disaster. These, and a host of other scary realities, threaten to overwhelm us and quench the little bit of light, leaven, and salt that we've been desperately holding on to from trauma to trauma. We are, it seems to me, in the midst of a global dark night. Many people, understandably, withdraw into helplessness, apathy, and defeat. 
but this is precisely the time for the saints, the real ones. This is the time when our understanding of this celebration must sink into a wiser and deeper space, such as we read of in the scripture about the tree that puts its roots deep into the earth seeking moisture. When the storms and violent winds come, such a tree, rooted so deeply, does not break. It is so filled with sap that it bends and moves with the winds, but is not broken. Being a saint, then, is all about being rooted in Christ and staying firm and faithful in the midst of all the violence. Being a saint in our time means being countercultural, seeing beyond and beneath the externals, knowing that, in spite of the fearful realities around us, the light of Christ is always present in the heart of our chaos. As the social activist William Sloan Coffin wrote, hopelessness adapts, hope resists. So we resist and we stand over and against injustice, poverty, violence, and diminishment of any kind like a tree rooted firmly in the earth. Rooted in Christ, we hold on to the gospel values. We dare to proclaim in the face of fear and evil that there is light down there in that darkness, that God is with us and will never leave us. Such a proclamation of faith in these times of darkness makes us, indeed, worthy to be called saints. So let us celebrate this Feast of All Saints with deep gratitude. <coughs> And now of poetry, a poem by Edwina Gately called Faith. It's from her book, Growing Into God, by Sheed and Ward. When all around is dead and gray, help me, God, keep on believing. When dulled my soul, though the songbirds sing, help me, God, keep on believing. When even I dare doubt your grace, Help me, God, keep on believing. When dreams collapse and bright hopes die, help me, God, keep on believing. A guest essay by Edwina Gately for All Saints Day. Her books this week, I review an interesting title called How the Bible became holy. The author is Michael Satlow, New Haven, Yale University Press, 2014, 350 pages. For most Jews and Christians today, the Bible is in some sense a divinely inspired book. To say that is to state the obvious. In my Episcopal church, for example, our worship service begins when our priest processes down the center aisle while elevating a bright red book of the four Gospels above his head. These aren't the words of Shakespeare or Homer. They aren't even man's word about God, as Karl Barth once said. The Bible, he said, was God's word about man. This might be true today for many Jews and Christians, 
But that was not always the case. In this social history of sacred scripture, Michael Satlow, who's professor of religious studies at Brown University, shows when and how the Bible gained its authority, how across almost 2,000 years, a random collection of historical texts became a holy canon. For Jews, this didn't happen until the 11th century, and for Christians, sometime in the late 4th century. Satlau begins with the northern kingdom of Israel in the 9th century BCE and works his way through to rabbinic Judaism of the early 3rd century. In the last part of the book, there are individual chapters on Jesus, Paul, the Gospels, and the early Christians. For Satlow, there were three main types of textual authority in antiquity, normative, literary, and oracular. Texts and their authority played only minor roles in the lives of most people in antiquity, he said. Texts were the privileged preserve of the few people who had the leisure, the money, the training, and the time to read and write. As the centuries rolled by, this textual equilibrium was punctuated by figures like Hezekiah, Josiah, Ezra, and the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Synagogues for the public reading of Scripture didn't arise until the first century. As you would expect when dealing with antiquity, some of the historical reconstruction, Satlau admits, is highly speculative open to debate, and dependent upon very few artifacts or fragmentary evidence. The dust jacket blurbs hail the work as provocative, controversial, and a challenge to fundamental assumptions about the nature of biblical authority. Unless you believe with Mormons that the Bible dropped from heaven in gold tablets, or an older dictation theory of inspiration, in some ways, Satlow has presented a scholarly version of what Jews and Christians have always known and believed. That the book of Psalms, or a letter from Paul, wasn't venerated as an inspired text at the moment of its composition. The inspiration and authority of Scripture, however, however hard to define or document, underwent a deeply human and historical process. And whereas sacred texts were marginal for most people for a long time, that's certainly not the case now. And so, the final sentence of this fascinating book. He writes, This is perhaps the Bible's greatest legacy, the radically implausible notion that one can build a community, a religion, a culture, and even a country around a text. Michael Satlow, How the Bible Became Holy. For movies this week, I review Boyhood from 2014. The writer, director, producer Richard Linklater spent 12 years from 2002 to 2013 
filming the same cast of people to dramatize the coming of age of a boy named Mason from age 6 to 18. His sister, Samantha, and single mother, Olivia, are significant secondary characters in the movie. Not much happens in this film. Not much except for all the little things that make a life. Family vacations, anxieties about school, birthday parties, a first girlfriend, the perils in sex and alcohol, all those things over which parents fret so much and try so hard. The message here seems to be that we somehow survive having and being parents. Not everything goes well for Mason, but most of his family does their best most of the time. Boyhood premiered at Sundance in Berlin and has won uniform critical praise, including an astonishing 99% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Richard Linklater, the film Boyhood. And for Reformation Sunday, for All Saints Day, and for All Souls Day, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Philip Larkin. The title is Church Going. Larkin received numerous awards for his writing, including an honorary doctorate from Oxford University in 1984. He lived from 1922 to 1985. The title again, Church Going. Once I am sure there's nothing going on, I step inside, letting the door thud shut. Another church, matting, seats, and stone, and little books, sprawlings of flowers cut for Sunday, brownish now, some brass and stuff up at the holy end, the small, neat organ, in a tense, musty, unignorable silence, brood God knows how long. Hatless, I take off my cycle clips in awkward reverence. <clears throat> Move forward, run my hand around the font, from where I stand, the roof looks almost new, cleaned or restored. Some would know, I don't. Mounting the lectern, I peruse a few hectoring large-scale verses and pronounce, Here endeth, much more loudly than I'd meant. The echoes snigger briefly. Back at the door, I sign the book, donate an Irish sixpence, reflect the place was not worth stopping for. Yet stop I did. In fact, I often do. And always end much at a loss like this. Wondering what to look for. Wondering, too, when churches will fail, fall completely out of use. What we shall turn them into if we shall keep a few cathedrals chronically on show, their parchment place and picks in locked cases, and let the rest rent free to rain and sheep, 
Shall we avoid them as unlucky places? Or, after dark, will dubious women come to make their children touch a particular stone? Pick simples for a cancer, or on some advised night see walking a dead one. Power of some sort will go on, in games, in riddles, seemingly at random. But superstition, like belief, must die. And what remains when disbelief has gone? Grass, weedy pavement, brambles, buttress sky. A shape less recognizable each week, a purpose more obscure. I wonder who will be the last, the very last, to seek this place for what it was. One of the crew that tap and jot and know what rudlops were? Some run liver randy for antique? Or Christmas attic counting on a whiff of gown and bands and organ pipes and myrrh? Or will he be my representative? Bored, uninformed, knowing the ghostly silk dispersed, yet tending to this cross of ground through suburb scrub because it held unsplit so long inequably what since is found only in separation, marriage and birth and death and thoughts of these, for which was built this special shell. For, though I've no idea what this accoutred frowsy barn is worth, it pleases me to stand in silence here, a serious house on serious earth it is, in whose blent air all our compulsions meet, are recognized and robed as destinies, and that much never can be obsolete, since someone will forever be surprising a hunger in himself to be more serious, and gravitating with it to this ground, which, he once heard, was proper to grow wise in, if only that so many dead lie around. Church Going by Philip Larkin Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November the 2nd, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.